Chapter 11 of A Mind That Found Itself by Clifford Whittingham Beers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Daly. Chapter 11 Though my few hours at home failed to prove that I did not belong in an institution, it served one good purpose. Certain relatives who had objected to my commitment now agreed that there was no alternative, and, accordingly, my eldest brother caused himself to be appointed my conservator. He had long favored taking such action, but other relatives had counseled delay. They had been deterred by that inbred dread of seeing a member of the family branded by law as a mental incompetent, and, to a degree, stigmatized by the prevailing unwarranted attitude of the public toward mental illness and the institutions in which mental cases are treated. The very thought was repellent, and a mistaken sense of duty, and perhaps a suggestion of pride, led them to wish me out of such an institution as long as possible. Though at the time I dreaded commitment, it was the best possible thing that could befall me. To be, as I was, in the world but not of it, was exasperating. The constant friction that is inevitable under such conditions, conditions such as existed for me in the home of my attendant, can only aggravate the mental disturbance. Especially is this true of those laboring under delusions of persecution. Such delusions multiply with the complexity of the life led. It is the even-going routine of institutional life which affords the indispensable quieting effect, provided that routine is well-ordered and not defeated by annoyances imposed by ignorant or indifferent doctors and attendants. My commitment occurred on June 11, 1901. The institution to which I was committed was a chartered private institution, but not run for personal profit. It was considered one of the best of its kind in the country, and was pleasantly situated. Though the view was a restricted one, a vast expanse of lawn surrounded by groups of trees like patches of primeval forest, gave the place an atmosphere which was not without its remedial effect. My quarters were comfortable, and after a little time I adjusted myself to my new environment. Breakfast was served about half-past seven though the hour varied somewhat according to the season, earlier in the summer and later in the winter. In the spring, summer, and autumn, when the weather was favorable, those able to go out of doors were taken after breakfast for walks within the grounds, or were allowed to roam about the lawn and sit under the trees, where they remained for an hour or two at a time. Dinner was usually served shortly after noon, and then the active patients were again taken out of doors, where they remained an hour or two, doing much as they pleased, but under watchful eyes. About half-past three they returned to their respective wards, there to remain until the next day, except those who cared to attend the religious services which were held almost every afternoon in an endowed chapel. In all institutions, those confined in different kinds of wards go to bed at different hours. The patients in the best wards retire at nine or ten o'clock, those in the wards where more troublesome cases are treated go to bed usually at seven or eight o'clock. I, while undergoing treatment, have retired at all hours, so that I am in the better position to describe the mysteries of what is, in a way, one of the greatest secret societies in the world. I soon became accustomed to the rather agreeable routine, 
and had I not been burdened with the delusions which held me a prisoner of the police and kept me a stranger to my old world, I should have been able to enjoy a comparatively happy existence in spite of all. This new feeling of comparative contentment had not been brought about by any marked improvement in health. It was due directly and entirely to an environment more nearly in tune with my ill-tuned mind. While surrounded by sane people, my mental inferiority had been painfully apparent to me, as well as to others. Here, a feeling of superiority easily asserted itself, for many of my associates were, to my mind, vastly inferior to myself. But this stimulus did not affect me at once. For several weeks I believed the institution to be peopled by detectives feigning insanity. The government was still operating the third degree, only on a grander scale. Nevertheless, I did soon come to the conclusion that the institution was what it purported to be, still cherishing the idea, however, that certain patients and attachés were detectives. For a while after my arrival, I again abandoned my new-found reading habit, but as I became accustomed to my surroundings, I grew bolder and resumed the reading of newspapers and such books as were at hand. There was a bookcase in the ward filled with old numbers of standard English periodicals, among them Westminster Review, Edinburgh Review, London Quarterly, and Blackwoods. There were also copies of Harper's and the Atlantic Monthly, dated a generation or more before my first reading days. Indeed, some of the reviews were over fifty years old. But I had to read their heavy contents or go without reading, for I would not yet ask even for a thing I ardently desired. In the room of one of the patients were thirty or forty books belonging to him. Time and again I walked by his door and cast longing glances at those books, which at first I had not the courage to ask for or take. But during the summer, about the time I was getting desperate, I finally managed to summon enough courage to take them surreptitiously. It was usually while the owner of these books was attending the daily service in the chapel that his library became a circulating one. The contents of the books I read made perhaps a deeper impression on my memory than most books make on the minds of normal readers. To assure myself of the fact, I have since re-read The Scarlet Letter, and I recognize it as an old friend. The first part of the story, however, wherein Hawthorne describes his work as a custom-house official and portrays his literary personality, seems to have made scarcely an impression. This I attributed to my utter lack of interest at the time in writers and their methods. I then had no desire to write a book, nor any thought of ever doing so. Letters I looked upon with suspicion. I never read them at the time they were received. I would not even open them, but generally, after a week or sometimes a month, I would secretly open and read them. Forgeries of the detectives. I still refused to speak, and exhibited physical activity only when the patients were taken out of doors. For hours I would sit reading books or newspapers, or apparently doing nothing. But my mind was in an active state and very sensitive. As the event proved, almost everything done or said within the range of my senses was making indelible impressions, though these at the time were frequently of such a character that I experienced great difficulty in trying to recall incidents 
which I thought I might find useful at the time of my appearance in court. My ankles had not regained anything like their former strength. It hurt to walk. For months I continued to go flat-footed. I could not sustain my weight with heels lifted from the floor. In going downstairs, I had to place my insteps on the edge of each step, or go one step at a time like a child. Believing that the detectives were pampering me into prime condition, as a butcher fattens a beast for slaughter, I deliberately made myself out much weaker than I really was, and not a little of my inactivity was due to a desire to prolong my fairly comfortable existence by deferring as long as possible the day of trial and conspicuous disgrace. But each day still had its distressing incidents. Whenever the attendants were wanted at the office, an electric bell was rung. During the fourteen months that I remained in this hospital in a depressed condition, the bell in my ward rang several hundred times. Never did it fail to send through me a mild shock of terror, for I imagined that at last the hour had struck for my transportation to the scene of the trial. Relatives and friends would be brought to the ward, heralded, of course, by a warning bell, and short interviews would be held in my room, during which the visitors had to do all the talking. My eldest brother, whom I shall refer to hereafter as my conservator, called often. He seldom failed to use one phrase which worried me. "'You are looking better and getting stronger,' he would say. "'We shall straighten you out yet.' To be straightened out was an ambiguous phrase which might refer to the end of the hangman's rope or a fatal electric shock. I preferred to be let alone, and the assistant physician in charge of my case, after several ineffectual attempts to engage me in conversation, humored my persistent taciturnity. For more than a year his only remarks to me were occasional conventional salutations. Subsequent events have led me to doubt the wisdom of his policy. For one year no further attention was paid to me than to see that I had three meals a day, the requisite number of baths, and a sufficient amount of exercise. I was, however, occasionally urged by an attendant to write a letter to some relative, but that, of course, I refused to do. As I shall have many hard things to say about attendance in general, I take pleasure in testifying that, so long as I remained in a passive condition, those at this institution were kind, and at times even thoughtful. But there came a time when diplomatic relations with doctors and attendants became so strained that war promptly ensued. It was no doubt upon the gradual but sure improvement in my physical condition that the doctors were relying for my eventual return to normality. They were not without some warrant for this. In a way, I had become less suspicious but my increased confidence was due as much to an increasing indifference to my fate as to an improvement in health, and there were other signs of improved mental vigor. I was still watchful, however, for a chance to end my life, and but for a series of fortunate circumstances I do not doubt that my choice of evils would have found tragic expression in an overt act. Having convinced myself that most of my associates were really insane, and therefore, as I believed, disqualified as competent witnesses in a court of law, 
I would occasionally engage in conversation with a few whose evident incompetency seemed to make them safe confidants. One, a man who during his life had more than once been committed to an institution, took a very evident interest in me and persisted in talking to me, often much against my will. His persistent inquisitiveness seemed to support his own statement that he had formerly been a successful life insurance agent. He finally gained my confidence to such a degree that months before I finally began to talk to others, I permitted myself to converse frequently with him, but only when we were so situated as to escape observation. I would talk to him on almost any subject, but would not speak about myself. At length, however, his admirable persistence overcame my reticence. During a conversation held in June 1902, he abruptly said, "'Why you are kept here I cannot understand. Apparently you are as sane as anyone. You have never made any but sensible remarks to me.' Now for weeks I had been waiting for a chance to tell this man my very thoughts. I had come to believe him a true friend who would not betray me. If I should tell you things which you apparently don't know, you would understand why I am held here, I said. Well, tell me, he urged. Will you promise not to repeat my statements to anyone else? I promise not to say a word. Well, I remarked. You have seen certain persons who have come here, professing to be relatives of mine. Yes, and they are your relatives, aren't they? They look like my relatives, but they're not, was my reply. My inquisitive friend burst into laughter and said, Well, if you mean that, I shall have to take back what I just said. You are really the craziest person I have ever met, and I have met several. You will think differently some day, I replied for I believed that when my trial should occur, he would appreciate the significance of my remark. I did not tell him that I believed these callers to be detectives, nor did I hint that I thought myself in the hands of the police. Meanwhile, during July and August 1902, I redoubled my activity in devising suicidal schemes, for I now thought my physical condition satisfactory to my enemies, and was sure that my trial could not be postponed beyond the next opening of the courts in September. I even went so far as to talk to one of the attendants, a medical student, who during the summer worked as an attendant at the hospital. I approached him artfully. First I asked him to procure from the library for me The Scarlet Letter, The House of Seven Gables, and other books. Then I talked medicine, and finally asked him to lend me a textbook on anatomy, which I knew he had in his possession. This he did, cautioning me not to let anyone know that he had done so. The book once secured, I lost no time in examining that part which described the heart, its functions, and especially its exact position in the body. I had scarcely begun to read when the young man returned and took the book from me, giving us his reason that an attendant had no right to let a patient read a medical work. Maybe his change of heart was providential. As is usual in these institutions, all knives, forks, and other articles that might be used by a patient for a dangerous purpose were counted by the attendants after each meal. This I knew, and the knowledge had a deterrent effect. I dared not take one. Though I might at any time during the night have hanged myself, 
that method did not appeal to me, and I kept it in mind only as a last resort. To get possession of some sharp, dagger-like instrument which I could plunge into my heart at a moment's notice, this was my consuming desire. With such a weapon I felt I could, when the crisis came, rob the detectives of their victory. During the summer months, an employee spent his entire time mowing the lawn with a large horse-drawn machine. This, when not in use, was often left outdoors. Upon it was a square wooden box containing certain necessary tools, among them a sharp, spike-like instrument used to clean the oil holes when they became clogged. This bit of steel was five or six inches long and was shaped like a pencil. For at least three months I seldom went out of doors that I did not go with the intention of purloining that steel spike. I intended then to keep it in my room against the day of my anticipated transfer to jail. It was now that my delusions protected me from the very fate they had induced me to court. For had I not believed that the eye of a detective was on me every moment, I could have taken that spike a score of times. Often, when it was not in use, I walked to the lawnmower and even laid my hand upon the toolbox, but I dared not open it. My feelings were much like those of Pandora about a certain other box. In my case, however, the box upon which I looked with longing had hope without and not within. Instinctively, perhaps, I realized this, for I did not lift the lid. One day, as the patients were returning to their wards, I saw lying directly in my path, I could even now point out the spot, the coveted weapon. Never have I seen anything that I wanted more. To have stooped and picked it up without detection would have been easy, and had I known, as I know now, that it had been carelessly dropped there, nothing could have prevented me from doing so, and perhaps using it with fatal effect. But I believed it had been placed there deliberately and as a test, by those who had divined my suicidal purpose. The eye of the imagined detective which I am inclined to believe, and like to believe, was the eye of the real God, was upon me, and though I stepped directly over it, I did not pick up that thing of death. End of chapter 11